I do think that what we're trying to reach is a holistic approach, not only to the greenhouses or the food that we grow, but and not only the organizations that we try to create, but how we are trying to bring people together in the way that exactly you are doing with care more, be better. But this is the part that we need to inspire others to help in this process. It is difficult in times, but it is the greatest joy that you could ever have. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, better. a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. With rising food costs, food security issues, and more all around the globe, more and more communities and individuals are really starting to think about growing their own food. But as it stands, simple solutions sometimes seem too far off. What about pests, water use limits, winters that are too cold and without enough light, and summers that can be just too darn hot and dry? How do we tackle these challenges? How do we grow a garden in our own home state or near our homes that can support the community that isn't ravaged by rodents, as I experience in my own yard? Well, in today's episode, you're going to learn why design decisions matter and how an engineering background and balance-oriented mindset can really help. To talk this through, I'm joined by Mark Plinka. Mark is an inventor, innovator, who started his career as a chemical and process engineer at the makers of Gore-Tex, a fabric I'm sure you've all used in rain jackets. When he landed in Boulder, Colorado, he actually retrofitted his family's 1960s ranch house into a beyond net zero energy home. Now, this is a dream of mine. The day I can get to net zero is one I will celebrate. Now, that experience led him into what is his second career in green building design. He's spent the past decade applying his engineering mindset and expertise to building better greenhouses. Mark started Sierra's Greenhouse Solutions with the intention of enabling people to grow their own food sustainably and year round. His passion is his family and a belief in leaving the world a better place for his kids and all of ours too. Join me in welcoming Mark Plinka. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Corina. So nice to hear you speak and so calmly. I'm not quite feeling that calm right now, but <laughs> I'm sure we'll settle in. Well, maybe we can get amped up too. I wanted to first start with learning from your experience of converting a 1960s home in Boulder, Colorado into something that could truly be net zero. What inspired you on that path and, and how long did it take? Just tell us a story. Well, I had the dream of being net zero or living a net zero life as really it started in 1973. I was 12 years old. That was the time of the first oil crisis. It actually started with an Arab-Israel war at that very time. And the OPEC decided not to deliver any oil to the US because they supported Israel. And so all of a sudden there was a spike of energy prices and there was just not enough oil in the world. And everybody in Germany was not allowed to drive. Germany, a country which loves their cars and going on the Autobahn, nobody was allowed to drive. And what happened impressed me. It was standing with my dad and I know exactly where it was on which street and we looked down on the street and there were no cars, which just never happened. And at that very moment, I decided this is a world that has finite resources and I need to do something to minimize the use of those resources. And I have been working on towards that goal really ever since. I always wanted to live in a net zero house, didn't have the resources, took me 25 years to get there. 
after finishing a PhD in chemical engineering. And then I did it right. And it was, I wanted to use an existing house, not a new one. That would have been too easy. And to try to do everything I can to make something more energy efficient, which included adding a lot of insulation. That's the easiest windows that are quadruple glazed, solar radiance, flooring, PV panels, everything that I could do to reduce the energy use of the house. And it was super, super fun. One of those things that any engineer could dream about and say, okay, this really makes sense. And I think when we were done, we were probably one of the 10 most energy efficient houses in the US from an old house that used to have a energy bill of $600 plus per month. Wow. Well, I got to tell you, I put solar in my home here in California. And at the time that I put it in, we were advised to cover 85% of our energy use. And I said, why? But the price ticket was such that I'm like, okay, well, we'll start there. We can always add panels later, right? And what happened is our lifestyle changed. I started working from home. I had two children and now we are paying each month. Now we do what we can to limit our energy use, but it is hard to get to the place where you're actually at a net zero. So I commend you for that. I've spoken to a few other people who've taken old homes and done something similar, but usually they were in a space that had, let's just say fields around them. So they could essentially put a solar farm on their property to account for seasonality issues and battery backup storage and things along those lines. Is that similar for you? Did you have enough space to put essentially a solar farm on your property? No, definitely not. We're in Boulder, Colorado. There is not a whole lot of land anywhere. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's why I was really curious. And the front yard was clearly set aside for my children to play and the neighbor's children. <laughs> we love to have lots of kids there and play soccer most of the time or volleyball or whatever. No, that was not an option. So it had to go on the roof. I did create an extra structure on the north side of the house that I could mount the solar thermal panels, which is the hot water panels. And with those two things, I could get there quite easily, actually. When you have enough insulation, you have the design of your house or your system set up correctly is relatively easy. Well, it's interesting, too, that as you open the conversation today, we were talking about conflict in Israel and how it affected other parts of the world. We now have conflicts around the globe that are affecting food supply beyond what has just recently been happening with the Israeli war. Thinking about Ukraine, which is called the breadbasket of Europe and how it's affected food supply throughout Europe. Now, I know part of your motivation behind this entire endeavor with Ceres is to essentially control for that and help communities be able to grow and procure their own food as opposed to relying to, on resources that are really far away. I mean, if you think about an apple, most of us in the United States are consuming apples that are grown in Washington and they're kept in cold storage and then they're shipped to us when it's time. But there are even species of apple that do quite well where I am and quite well where you are that we could be moving towards kind of this regionality in a broader foodscape. But I realize you know, we're not talking about greenhouses for orchards. I'm just trying to make it real so people can understand they can literally have something like a greenhouse that you would work to create that can feed their community. So can we talk about why you started Ceres and what you're capable of doing today? So the reason I started Ceres, and really I have to admit, I was so ignorant my whole life before this house project, I was thinking about energy use in terms of cars and power plants and everything related to living until one of the consultants that helped me pick the right windows for my house. On the east side, I have different windows than on the west and the south and the north. They all are different for different reasons and light transmission and all of this. I wanted to be extra fancy. This guy walks up to me. His name is Larry Kinney. And he said, Mark, you have a plug-in car and you have energy home. Where does your food come from? And that was 2009. And I was perplexed. Of course, first I wanted to say the grocery store, which I knew was the wrong answer. Molly Engelhardt would be turning around and 
you know, it's like kick this guy in the behind. You're referring to my prior guest who has that's right organic regenerative restaurant. I get it. That's exactly right. So I was completely unaware what the effect of the food supply on energy usage and CO2 emissions was. And I feel today very, very embarrassed to admit that. But on the other hand, proud enough to say, hey, I have learned a lot since then. And, you know, I'm somewhat educated. I cared about the environment and I didn't know that. And it felt really bad. But I just had sold my last company before that. So I said, I would be happy to help you build some greenhouses. And he got money from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to build the most energy efficient greenhouse. And so we actually built it ourselves, thousand square feet. And it was an awesome experience. And then the idea came, okay, we need to build these things in people's backyards. And we did. So I started around 2009 and not really until the time of the cannabis legalization in Colorado, did people really want to listen to us or to me at that point when I said, hey, we have a much more energy efficient way to grow anything. And people just said, yes, 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 that's great. Show me, build me one for free so that I can test it and see if it's good. Or at least traditional farmers tend to be a little on the conservative side. And it's like, oh, we have all these salespeople telling us all these things and I don't really want to see it. And so the cannabis people came from the business background and you could give them an energy calculation and say, here it is. And so they did. And it worked amazingly. We built the first greenhouse that was commercial in a town in Colorado that was at 10,500 feet altitude, which is quite cold. I think it's the highest town in the U.S. It's near where my mother lives, I think. My family is up in Divide, Colorado. Yeah. And so this was in the town of Leadville. And they needed to build a building that was, by code, as efficient as any other commercial building, which is, when you know greenhouses, next to impossible. But we were able to do that. And so all the things that we have learned from a few years of building backyard greenhouses led us to grow half the first commercial building, which was not big. It was only about 3,000 square feet or 300 square meter for the people that are not necessarily U.S. citizens listening to your talk. And so from there, then came the explosion that all of a sudden, all these people wanted these greenhouses. And so we cornered part of the market that was really before not really occupied. It means there are big grass houses that are built in all over the world. And they are generally, this market is owned by the Dutch. They have been building greenhouses forever. The Dutch and the British, really, they were the first. And the Dutch have perfected that to a degree that they can build multi-hectare greenhouses for prices that nobody in the world can touch. And so they own the market. And here in the US, we had some manufacturers that also looked at bigger properties. And these big greenhouses are necessary, completely necessary to supply big cities with food, no doubt. If you want to do greens, leafy greens, even tomatoes, most of Europe is fed by these big greenhouses. In the US, they are just currently built just the same around all the big population centers. And that's absolutely necessary. But there is a market out there for people that want to grow food locally, meaning for smaller communities, cities, towns that are 10,000 people, maybe 50,000, that are far away from everybody else. Where in towns, you only get food deliveries to the local supermarket once a week. And that is not uncommon. I think most Europeans would probably look at that and say, what? That's not possible. But yes, in the US, that is quite possible. And we have food deserts that not only in inner cities, but we have food deserts in many rural areas where the farmers are farming and they have literally nothing fresh to eat. They have to drive hours to get to the next supermarket. And they can use greenhouses, but in the US, it is 
unfortunately or fortunately, the weather is quite extreme in the summer. It can be easily over 100 degrees or 40 degrees Celsius, but it can also be minus 20, minus 30. And at that stage, a greenhouse becomes so incredibly difficult to operate that you can really as well fly in your tomato from Mexico because the amount of energy that it takes in the traditional greenhouse to heat it in the winter is just not, doesn't make sense economically and from the CO2 balance. And so now we could build greenhouses that can actually grow those kind of crops in those climates all year long with only using a fraction of that energy. And that's what we're really after. Now, I know people can visit your website to see how these greenhouses are constructed and how they look and work and all of that. But for those that are just listening on audio and curious about how this works, I mean, my vision of a greenhouse, when you talk about Holland, I'm probably thinking automatically of flower growing, you know, like tulips or something. I know you're talking about food, but, you know, I've seen large greenhouses that are growing bouquets of flowers. I've seen greenhouses that are growing things like string beans and tomatoes and some other green leafy vegetables. But because I'm in California, most of our growing is just outside, right? So we have fairly mild climate here and we have growing seasons that are quite long. We do truck in strawberries and other berries for a few months of the year from Mexico. But most of it, what we consume here is really grown right in Watsonville or in Salinas. I mean, it's nearby. So I haven't seen what you're talking about when you say this greenhouse in Holland that are very large versus what you're doing. Can you describe the difference? What makes this so unique? So traditional greenhouses are just basically big glass boxes. In most places, they're glass with a single layer of glass, and they are multi-hectare, which means multi-hundred thousands or millions of square feet of greenhouses that have fully automated. There are almost no people in there, and the crops will be harvested these days even by automation. And with very few people, you can run, let's say, three, four people that are only needed to grow enough food to feed a small city. But in our greenhouses, this system, or we believe that this system is really not quite sustainable because you have to use an enormous amount of energy to heat that greenhouse, to keep it at the temperatures that your crops need. With lettuce, you only need about 50 degrees, which is fine. You could go a little lower. But tomatoes, for example, which are a common greenhouse crop. I mean, that's why they're called house tomatoes, right? That's right. They're literally called hothouse. Yeah. And in those houses, you cannot grow tomatoes in the winter. It's just way too expensive. So what do we do? We buy most of our tomatoes out of Mexico here in Colorado, at least we do. And in most places in the US, those tomatoes come from Mexico. They get picked green, they shipped here, they will get put into an ethylene chamber where they get ripened, basically painted red, and then they get put on your supermarket shelf. And those tomatoes you can recognize quite easily. They kind of have this little translucent color and more or less no taste. And they're kind of mealy, often, right? Like a mealy flavor. That's exactly right. They didn't ripen on the vine, so their flesh remained more dense, right? Yeah. So the trick of a good greenhouse design is to take what nature gives you for free, mostly sun in this case, and the temperatures, depending on what you need, and use that together with appropriate technologies to make sure that you get the best outcome for the plant, which is really the question of temperature, humidity, and light. Those are the three most important things that go into a greenhouse design. We're not talking about the soil and the nutrients. That's a different part of the equation. From a greenhouse design point, we want to reach a good temperature, a good humidity, and good light. And we want the light to be as close to natural as possible. So just using LEDs, which only use a part of the light spectrum, grow certain plants well, but they are missing certain chemicals. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, just think of it 
we're making a greenhouse that is designed more like a solar collector. It's oriented from the east to the west and is open towards the south. So the nice thing is the sun is shining. It is collecting the sunlight. It doesn't let it go out. And that sun stays inside the greenhouse. It warms the greenhouse during the day. So it can be minus 20 degrees outside. But on a sunny day, if it's a nicely insulated greenhouse that is insulated on every place where the sun doesn't come in, that temperature inside the greenhouse can be more than 100 degrees. No problem at all. We've all experienced this even with our cars, right? Like it can be 60 degrees outside. But if you leave the car windows up in the sunlight, it's warm in there, like warm. That's right. You're relying on what's called the greenhouse effect, right? Yes, that's exactly what we call the greenhouse effect. That's exactly right. And so what the normal people do is they just put on a fan in the daytime, push all that energy out so that it becomes reasonable in the temperature. And then at nighttime, when you actually need to heat the greenhouse, they use fossil fuels to heat the greenhouse. And we, amongst many other things, just go and actually capture this energy that the sun is providing. We're putting it under the ground, in the ground, and they actually have the energy stored in the soil. And then it comes out of the soil at nighttime to actually heat your greenhouse. So actually, I don't want to vent any of the air out in the wintertime. In the wintertime, I want to keep all the heat inside. That's a design decision. That's where the engineering part comes in that's really fun, right? Well, how do you do that best? Do you store it in water? Do you store it in soil? Those kind of decisions can be made depending on people's budget and efficiency, et cetera. So in this case, it sounds like you're taking thermodynamics and the same principles that are used to create heating pumps and applying them to greenhouses. Yes, that's exactly what it, I'm glad you're saying that because that's exactly what it is. In essence, it's a heat pump, only that it is not using a compressor. It just, in this point, just moves the energy around. But in essence, it's the same thing. Sounds like it would be less expensive to do because you have the soil there already. With the soil being warmer, then it's automatically going to create more heat in the space. But I can see how it would also regulate it. I mean, what do you see a dog do? And when a dog goes to lay down on a hot day, they find a space in the shade and they scratch at the surface to find the cooler earth underneath. So if you heat the cooler earth underneath, then that blanket is essentially going to continue kind of radiating. So it's radiant heat at that point. Yep. It, not only, it radiates a different way. Now, being a chemical engineer, you think, okay, there's three ways to transmit energy. Radiation is one and conduction. We can talk about all of this, but no, but you're right. It basically, you're storing it in the soil, partly for radiant, but also for conduction. So as the air flows through this ground, it will heat the air up and therefore it will then bring warm air back into the greenhouse. Very cool. So I mean, can already see kind of how this whole system would work a circular fashion, I should say, to contribute to sustainable food production, to reduce CO2 emissions, and to put really healthy food in the hands of people where they need it, as opposed to far away from them. Are there any particular examples that you presently have of cities within the United States where this is already benefiting a local community and has enough scale to support, I don't know, 10,000 people, like it's just on the smaller side. Yeah. So we have a few of such examples. I think one of them is a small company started by somebody who was a former wealth manager, now called Green's House. They are in near Ottawa in Ontario. And he has one greenhouse that he built a little while ago, and he learned everything about, his name is Rob Lyle. He learned everything about growing from wealth management to growing lettuce is one bigger step than normal. But he is so interested and has delivered, is making daily deliveries to supermarkets. And he sells the idea of hyperlocal. He is very successful and is currently thinking about upgrading to a facility that has 60,000 square feet of 
space and will make 12,000 heads of lettuce a day. So that is one where he is upgrading. Think another one where I'm using that because they are the cold places. We have a client that grows aquaponically in Gunnison, Colorado, which is, I think, the coldest place in the lower 48 states. Extremely cold. I mean, minus 40 degrees happens almost daily in the winter. And she's also a professor at the local university. And she is very successful growing and selling lettuces into the local market. And those are extreme places. Of course, you don't need to be that extreme. There's many places in the US that this works. By the way, the same technologies with the same ideas can also work not only in very cold places, but also in very warm places. But that's a don't need to go there here. I'm just saying um, these are all engineering problems that you can solve as long as you're open to making decisions that are best for the local economy and not use one solution everywhere because that doesn't work. And so being flexible is the part that makes things work as a whole. Yeah. In an earlier episode, over, gosh, it's been two years now, when I interviewed Paul Hawken, he's well-known in climate regenerative, the regenerative space. He's the architect of Project Drawdown and wrote the book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. I asked him the question about some of these current technologies we have for growing food, namely vertical farming. And his criticism of vertical farming was that, okay, well, go ahead and tell me what foods you eat in a day. And people mention grains, they mention beans, they mention legumes, they mention perhaps some animal proteins in there too. But he's like, well, it won't work for that. You're only going to be able to grow microgreens, maybe some tomatoes, maybe some beans, perhaps, or something to that effect. But are you going to scale something like soy? Are you going to scale something like corn? Are you going to scale something like wheat production or millet or, you know, these things that take vast swaths of land typically to grow? And so, you know, some of those solutions, while they sound really, really good, like, Oh, if you're growing in a vertical farm, you're able to have a smaller footprint, automate all of these things, have the plants grown without soil, just pushing to them the nutrients they need and the visible light that they need to grow. I don't think that's necessarily going to have the same nutrient profile as something grown in soil. I think you can prove that out. I also wonder what your tort would be to that kind of criticism about vertical farming which this may or may not even connect to, and greenhouse farming. Yeah, that's a fun topic. And I'm sure I'll step in some areas that maybe people may not be all that well like. But anyway, I have an opinion, <laughs> of course, like anybody else. Yeah, of course. Let me start with traditional farming, I do believe, will always be there. You have to farm on scales for certain crops that you cannot do in a greenhouse, nor should you, nor does that make any sense, nor is the value there to do that. It just, and probably a significant part of your diet has to come from traditional farming. And that will, I can't see this going well. I think one of your guests, uh, Steve Cornwell said, oh, I don't see how that couldn't be done in the greenhouse. Of course, it can be done. It's just a question of value. And I just don't believe that the value will be big enough, nor do I think just was in a big indoor ag conference in New York a few weeks ago, that there's even no way to scale up greenhouses in this country to the degree that it would cover all the lettuce production and herb production, which are very easy to grow in greenhouses. Even that is not possible. So we don't need to think about corn and soy. And, and this is a different world. The greenhouse world, or really it's better called the controlled environmental agriculture, um, has a specific area which it is very good at. And those are really vegetables generally that have a higher value and leafy greens and strawberries. Beside that, there isn't a whole lot of value. And the greenhouses can help grow these vegetables 
very well with minimal environmental impact, meaning much less water usage, much less energy usage, not less than it's on the outside, but at a much, much better quality. And so it, and it is, can be grown much denser per area, which then allows shorter distances to the customers. Again, I think Molly was clear and said, I want everything at the customer stores within two days. And some of the customers that I just mentioned have it literally there on the same day. Which is incredible because I've even seen some footage from people like taking fresh lettuce and breaking it in the field. And it shows this kind of white texture, almost like if you pick a dandelion, how it kind of sweats that white, like it's a sap, essentially. But if you do yep. that with the same lettuce that has been sitting in the grocery store for a week, it doesn't do that. It doesn't taste the same. It doesn't smell the same. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't have the same nutrition. It's essentially already started a breakdown. And so if we can do same day, then you win. Yes. I think you saw the Need to Grow movie. Watch that too. And you can see it there very clearly. I do. And so they talked about the quality of the food. And I had the pleasure to work to a scientist uh, with a, a scientist of one of the biggest tomato growers in the US in Florida, I visited him and he was very proud of the tomato that he came up with and he let me try it. And it was really, it was exciting. And he was so happy and he is like typical nerd. I could completely bond with him. <laughs> and so he said, yeah, and I'm making this awesome tomato and we know that below 50 degrees, that tomato stored at below 50 degrees for first a few hours will decrease the nutrient density by about half. So if supermarkets are, most supermarkets these days know well enough that tomatoes are not put into the cold storage. They're all open on the floor somewhere, right? That is great. But when they come out of a distribution center where they get shipped together with the lettuce that needs to be cold and everything else, the whole truck is cold. So by the time it actually gets to the market, it's already wasted. So you have the best tomato in the world and you already killed it. And so this is where the short distance to the consumer is essential. And this is the reason. I'm butting in here for a second just because I want to share like this is the reason I go to farmer's markets as opposed to going to the grocery store to buy my produce as much as possible. So I do that on Saturdays. There's a local one here on Saturdays, but I'm getting food that's local. It tastes better. It remains fresh longer. I can keep it at room temp and it doesn't sit there and just rot in a day. Now the strawberries are perhaps the exception there. They tend to go rather fast. So we'll take some of them and freeze them for later use. But my kids like to eat them super fast, so it's not really a problem. <laughs> if I was confident that my grocery store got vegetables that were grown locally, sourced locally, then that story might change. But I'm not, frankly. I see the giant trucks pull up, the refrigerated big haulers, the 18-wheelers, right? And they're unloading food that is wrapped in plastic that has probably been on that truck for a week. Yes, that's Rob Ontario. He easily competes with that and says, they do all their stuff. Mine is separate. It stands there and it's sold out right away. I can't even deliver it fast enough because it is hyper-local and people buy it. And so the question that we all have to ask is, what is it worth to us? Rob tries to keep the price very similar to the material that for the lettuce that comes from 2,500 miles away, in his case, comes all the way from the other side of the country. We have to choose. It, every one of your speakers says that, right? It's the customer that needs to choose. Then the market will provide. If the customer doesn't choose that, then if we don't choose it, the customers, all of us, if we don't choose it, it doesn't happen. Any engineering solution that we can come up with, whatever, it, it makes no difference if we as consumers don't care. And we need to care, which is what your show is about, right? That's exactly what your show is about. I think the frustration point is that I can make all those decisions, but it doesn't move the needle for the Rayleigh's Knob Hill down the street or the Safeway or the Albertsons or the Whole Foods or the Sprouts Farmer's Market. Like 
even those stores like Whole Foods or Sprouts that call themselves the natural grocers or more natural leaning store, hyperlocality isn't something that's on the radar for them because they're looking to build in economies of scale and efficiencies. And I can't imagine a day, I really can't, when their supply chains would shift so much that Rob Lyle's Greens house style <laughs> work would just end up on their shelves. How do we push for that? I'm asking the question. Yes. How did I push for one of these big guys to actually make that leap when so much of what I put on the table, they seem to dictate by what they'll put on the shelf? I think the change is happening. We know supermarkets is one in Boulder that is very happily next to my house or relatively close called Lucky's Market, they made a pledge to be 10% of all the product they sell is local, 10%, which in Colorado is quite difficult because when you consider that we have a growing season that only starts, yes, this really in May, ends just about now. We had the first frost last night. So that is a challenge and they're making it work. It certainly comes with the slow money approach. Woody Tash is out there. There are there's lots of people that help us move there. And the local Whole Foods has, when you walk in, you can see on each of the window panes of their glass front window are pictures of local farms that they are promoting. In many restaurants in town, it's the same thing. They'd have a list of all the local farms that are there. It is happening. It is just maybe not happening as quickly as we would like it, but it is happening. Yeah, I'm glad to see that. I um, worry at times that these words are going to be co-opted and greenwashed. Like what does hyperlocal mean? Is it within, is it going to be regulated in some way so that it can't be abused? Maybe it's defined as something that doesn't require a refrigerated truck to move it. But then what does that mean? How many days? <laughs> it's like you could really start to split hairs. Yes, I think you can, a hyperlocal, another guest speaking about 100 miles um, that they had the restaurant, I think in this particular case, I think look at that a little bigger than 100 miles, the supermarket does, but certainly all Colorado on the north um, east side of Colorado. And so many of the products that they sell are literally from town. Boulder is a food town, so it's for foodies and that there are lots of people that invest. But it is, I feel very clearly that there is a shift and this shift is happening. It makes me feel happy. CSAs, yes, we all, like also Molly said before, I don't want to, she said, hey, I had to provide all this during the pandemic and now my sales are down by 70%. I feel really, really sad about that. I continue to stay with the CSA because that's our biggest contribution that we can make. It supports your local community. Yeah. And the dollars that you're spending in your own town are um, paying back by, I think, um, triple is the number that I heard from the slow food people. Um, you keep the dollars in your community. Makes so much more sense than giving it to other places, don't even talk about China and all of that, which is a completely different topic. But let's just on the food side alone, we all have to make these choices and we need to be enticed. And I think when people take the time and taste their food, I think that's the big issue. If they taste their food truly and don't take a bite between running and doing five different things, then you don't value food. We need to value it. And we need to understand that there's a health benefit, or if we don't do that, there's a cost associated with not paying attention to your food. And that is not necessarily everybody knows that, but more and more people starting to know that. Well, and I wonder if you could help settle something for me and my understanding with relation to greenhouses. My perception is that products grown in greenhouses would be less susceptible to pests, that we'd have to use less pesticides, that since the growing conditions are more controlled, 
that the synthetic fertilizer likelihood would be lower and that the overall impact on the environment in a negative way and also on the food would therefore be less. Am I right in making that assumption or is this just a pipe dream? I want to say that depends on the kind of greenhouse you have. In that particular case, it depends on the amount of light or the kind of light, the quality of the light that you have. So if you have greenhouses that are letting the full spectrum of the light in, including the UV light, then, and especially if that light is diffuse, meaning bouncing everywhere, then I'm going to say this in a, make this a joke with kids, but um, you shine the light on the sex life of the bugs and they don't like it. They're not happy. And so they don't proliferate is really what happens. But when you use the wrong glazing materials that take the UV light out, all of a sudden, the, every bug is going to be happy and saying, oh, this is great. Let's just, here it's nice and warm and cozy all year long. It's nice and moist. I'm having a great time. And that pesky UV light is not going to be bugging me. I'm going to be really happy. So it depends on the light quality that you have in your greenhouse. And so there are not many materials that let the full spectrum in. We use a particular one that's called ETFE, much more sustainable in, in many ways than glass is. And as glass has 50 times more CO2 than ETFE does. Now, those are impressive numbers and they can help reduce the pests in greenhouses. But you need to be careful in a greenhouse, depending on how you grow. If you are growing in aquaponics, which is a very sustainable way to do this, meaning you use fish, you feed the fish, the fish poop, the fish poop goes to the plants, the plants have the biology to match it, and that is embedded into the system so that the plants actually get the nutrients given to them in the right way. That is a very healthy way to grow indoor in a water culture, but it is very hard to control pests because those traditional pest control methods would kill your fish. So you know if something is grown in an aquaponic system, you can do that. There are not many places where this is done on large scales, but this is happening more and more all over the world. And because of food safety issues, people say, hey, you're growing fish and you're growing vegetables next to each other. There's all kind of possibilities for contamination. You need to be careful. But it, this is happening now. Hydroponics, which is using nutrients you're getting from the earth directly in the form that the plant can eat it, is not organic. But that's where you talked earlier. Now I want to see what the nutrient differences between something that's called hydroponically grown or grown in aquaponics or in soil. Of course, you can do all of it, but in commercial agriculture, in greenhouses, soil is very seldomly used. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about UV light impacting little critters, because to me, it all seems the same. It comes with the visible light. But I know there are species even of algae. I work in the algae space where you grow algae and they actually get burned by the UV lights just the way our skin does. And so part of how they are handle that is that they're constantly kind of moving through the water and some's getting exposed and then it isn't. So it's kind of constantly cycling. And that happens with the temperature convection of water itself naturally, whether it be at sea or in a pond, right? And so we're growing our algae in Iceland using only green energy. We just show it the light bands that it needs, which is blend of red and blue light, and it's optimal for it. It does great. So to the point of those growers who might be growing in the winter months when there isn't a lot of light and they're using these lights to grow food as opposed to the sun with UV light, do you tend to recommend that they also have UV lamps included in these types of growing enclosures so that they limit pests? It is tricky to do that because the UV lamps are also somewhat directional, meaning they're rather strong in certain areas and not so strong in others. So the nice thing about doing this in a natural way is that the UV is in a natural amount. I think 
one thing people forget and putting on my chemical engineering hat, I look at plants as a chemical factory. I know that this sounds not very enticing to people. Not sexy, not like the bugs getting jiggy. <laughs> That's right. And so we really look at photosynthesis, which just says, hey, I take CO2 and water and put light in it and I make sugar and oxygen. That's a chemical reaction. But in the world of plants, we make much more than the sugars we make. Amongst others, I can just pick one, terpenes. That's basically what smells, right? Plants make terpenes, every plant does. And they are used for many reasons. For the plant, they can be a pest control, they can be a critter control. There are 30,000 of them. This is a chemical. We measure that on a plant-to-plant -plant basis in the cannabis world because it's a high-value crop and it's very easy for us to measure what environmental conditions and what light we need to make the terpenes we want. And we can do the same thing with plants, with tomatoes and everything else. These terpenes are what you would find in essential oils. So anybody that likes essential oils, don't, oils, don't we all do? You know, smells good. Those are terpenes. They're made by plants. And so plants make chemicals. That's normal. And we need to make plants, or we need to give plants the ability to actually produce the chemicals that most beneficial under the best circumstances. And that is something that agriculture cannot provide because in agriculture, you just have to take whatever the conditions are outside. But in a controlled environment, you can change that or you can change the light as well. And what we have found is that the UV light actually significantly affects these terpenes. So having more UV light increases the terpenes increases the flavor profile, the taste, um, the smell of whatever you're eating. And also other chemicals, I just use terpenes in this case because it was very easy. In tomatoes, you can talk about lycosines. It doesn't matter. They're, these, we are just at the beginning of understanding these differences. And it is super exciting in our world to make better food by getting into these conditions. We have learned a lot through this cannabis world because there the value was immediate. But it is now trickling down. It's a trickle-down effect that I really, really like that it goes into the food production and it is going to the lettuce, it goes to the tomatoes, it goes to strawberries, it goes everywhere. And this is a super exciting time for work in the controlled environmental agriculture. It's just amazing. What you're revealing to me is that growing, when you take it indoors, whether it be aquaponics or a vertical farm or a standard greenhouse or what we're doing with Orlo Nutrition and Vaxa Technologies and growing in these photobioreactors indoors, is that a lot of it is engineering problems. <laughs> you're talking about input versus output, no wonder this kind of gets your creative juices flowing because essentially, yes, you have to feed nitrates and phosphorus and things like that in order for the plant to grow and in different balances for different plants. But to understand that natural ultraviolet light impacts the flavor profile of a tomato, of a leaf of spinach, of whatever the plant is, I just immediately went to arugula as an example. People who consume arugula may know that if you pick it early in the growing season, the leaves are, are newer. It's not as spicy. But if you let it grow super tall and kind of bush out, it can be so spicy it's hard to eat. And that's the terpenes. Because <laughs> I'm thinking about the chemical compounds in these things too. Some of them can trend bitter. Some of them can trend a little bit more like spicy. Kind of trying to harvest the fruit and the food at its peak of nutrition is hard to do in mass scale farming because even within a single plot, the conditions from one edge of the property to another can vary so much. And so I'm thinking about something like this greenhouse growing and saying, okay, this is a smaller scale, but still scalable. You can grow these foods like 
the lettuce, the tomato, probably the broccoli and some of the other crucifers that don't take up an incredible amount of space to grow. But there seems to be so much science going into this that, as you said, it's we're early phase and we're learning more every day. You know, I don't know if you recognize it, and, and I, but I don't know where the idea of organic farming came from or how old that actually is. Some person, there was a person that generally, when you look this up, there was a guy called Albert Howard who, who first described British and he worked in India in 1909 and described Indian farming practices and was generally looked at as somewhat of a first stage of the organic movement. But really, the person that pushed this was Rudolf Steiner, who is the founder of the Waldorf School system. He gave a presentation in 1924, which is pretty much exactly 100 years from today, with 111 participants in what was, I think at the time, still German. Now it is, it is Polish in Poland to talk about the first biodynamic concept. It was shortly before his death and he changed farming with that forever. He talked about soil biota already then, and that's a hundred years ago. Now, from there, just so happened that one of his students was an uncle of mine, Dr. Hans Müller, who I met very well in Switzerland. He started the first bio label called Bioland in Switzerland, and that step happened in the 50s. We have been learning about food and the quality of food for more than 100 years in written documents, not only in generations of since humans started farming, but scientifically since 100 years. And really, I thought when I got his start on greenhouses, I thought, yeah, how long does, can this take? Cannot be that difficult. Let's say one, two years, and I know everything that needs to be knowing about greenhouses. And the reality is, once you start doing this, my list of research projects that some of them I know will change the world in terms of food quality and as well as energy efficiency, using solar thermal to heat greenhouses, etc. Those questions are so big and so relevant to us and just had enough funding to do it all I would, but my list is more than 30 projects that we know will change. And instead of, I can't get rid of them as quickly as I add new ones to it. And it's just as a company. And I think what we really need to think about is it is not the individual's contribution. It's not Rudolf Steiner or my uncle, you and I, I think you do an awesome job by spreading these ideas. And I think this is where I want to go as an organization for series is I must make sure that we train the young people from today to feel that they are confident, that they have power, that they can change the world instead of sitting back and saying, oh, this is too big. I can't do it. It's like, yes, you can. You as a I want to say as a privileged person, I mean, I'm going to say this simply, you have an iPhone 14 or more, you are privileged. I mean, I have an Android girl, but I get the thing. I mean, I have a camera here and a podcast. <laughs> the point is that you are privileged. You have a responsibility to society to make this better. And this is what we do as an organization, right? So as a, organizations, we still run organizations mostly in older structures. I learned at Gore that there's a different way to look at this. There's now something we're running, it's called Holacracy, which is a completely different way of organizing a company that encourages people, not in the traditional hierarchical system, but in a way to, you don't have static job descriptions, they change. Of course, we have wage transparency, but we also now just instituted basically an unlimited vacation policy. There are ways to not just look at food, but look at our society and everything in it to make this. This is not just, I didn't want it to be just to talk about food only and greenhouses. All of that is important, 
it is much more important that the young people from today get the knowledge that we have to share and that we learn from them so that they can make the world better because that multiplying effect is the only way that we can get dig ourselves out of our problems if we don't we hang on to the knowledge it's all worth for nothing yeah well i have to say 100% agree with everything you just shared i feel like it connects really nicely to this concept of hyperlocality because if we're taking care of our own companies the way we organize the way we care for our employees our coworkers the grace we give them if they need to, as Crystal DeGroot, who I interviewed on another podcast I host called Nutrition Without Compromise, she actually instituted what she calls moon days for women menstruating. So that when they had a moon day, they could take a day off because they didn't feel good. Like a sick day in another way. And everyone has this kind of experience. And at first, the board and other people there are sitting there saying, oh, but you're basically giving more vacation time, like up to 12 or so more vacation days to women. It's like, no, we're taking care of our women. And ultimately, we think that this will improve their productivity because there's going to be gratitude. And I don't think it will be abused on and on and on. If we're treating the whole, we're looking at this as a holacracy, and I love that word. And then we take that approach with our food And we take that approach with the people who help us farm and procure it. And we take that approach with how we even shop, then we are going to make a bigger difference on the daily. So I so appreciate those closing remarks. I do want to offer you the opportunity to leave us with one more thought if you care to, or if there was a question that you wish I had asked, you could ask and answer it. Yes. Didn't expect that question at this point. (laughs) I'm glad that you're asking it. I do think what we're trying to reach is a holistic approach, not only to the greenhouses or the food that we grow, but and not only the organizations that we try to create, but how we are trying to bring people together in the way that exactly you are doing with care more, be better. But this is the part that we need to inspire others to help in this process. It is difficult in times, but it is the greatest joy that you could ever have. And you are helping us, getting us there. And I I am so, so thankful that you're doing this. And this means the world to me. And I'm really, really happy that you're pushing us all to be better. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been an honor, a privilege to host this conversation. And I got to tell you, I learned a thing or two as well. I really wish I had enough space to incorporate one of your beautiful greenhouses on my property. Um, I'm battling the squirrels and the little plot of land I try to farm squirrels and, and other rodents who seem to want to eat the ripest part of every tomato I grow. Well, they know what's good. (laughs) They do. They like literally leave it growing on the vine and just eat the ripest part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Karina, thank you so much. Wow. What a pleasure to learn with an engineer and someone who also stays focused on helping to reach a natural balance. I wanted to share a few key takeaways that I have come through with today. One is that I think design decisions really matter, that focusing on hyperlocality is really one of the only ways forward, and that balancing the right amount of technology with natural solutions can really bring us toward a more sustainable future. It can actually improve the success of companies and growers that are seeking to support hyperlocality as well. And that when we go through that, when we actually support local, regional food sources, businesses on down the line, that the money stays in our community and can do, to Mark's point, three times the benefit, have three times the power. Now, I hope that today we helped you care a little bit more about where your food is coming from. And necessarily, it will necessarily impact the future of food and your health and your community. Now, I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Mark Plinka, Sierra's Greenhouse Solutions, and more in show notes. 
But if you visit caremorebebetter.com, you'll find the complete transcripts to this episode. You'll also find resources that we mentioned from the films and episodes that came up through the course of our conversation. And you'll also receive a special gift if you join our newsletter. It's simply a five-step guide to help organize your efforts, inspire your activism, and also live a greener life. This was the birth child of my years in graduate school for my MBA and a gift for all of you. And wherever you're listening to this, be it just audio or on YouTube, I hope you'll write us a comment, give us a thumbs up, five-star rating. Be sure to subscribe and set that bell to notify you when we release new episodes. Not only does all of this help us reach more people, it will also ensure that you're alerted when we have a next great guest come on. If you'll do me the favor of writing us a review on Apple Podcasts, that helps us even more. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, We can even grow more nutritious food with a smaller carbon footprint and with a greater connection to our communities. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 